0: How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to see you guys this morning. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Appreciate that. always appreciate that when I'm here. My name is Ryan. I am the director of the Bridge Street House of Prayer. Many of you guys I know. Many more I have not yet had the honor to meet. And I would love to meet you and hear your story if we have time for that. Uh, Love being here at Crossroads. I used to be on the teaching team here many years ago when, uh, when we had two campuses here, and uh, then I left to go help plant a church over in our neighborhood. And But it's great to be back when I have the opportunities to come back here and preach. It's, uh, there's so many things that I love and appreciate about this church. Every time we're here, it feels like family and One of the things that I so appreciate about this church is that it's not a church that is built on the personality of one man. I love that about this church. That you guys are not here to watch a man or to experience a good program, but you're here to seek the face of God. I love that about this church, that there's such a crop of especially young people that are being raised up and discipled to lead and guide this church. I love that. It's always very humbling for me to be here as well. Because there's so many of you here that I have learned much from and continue to learn from. And uh, there's so many of you here that could probably do a much better job than I will do this morning. So we're in the book of Job. Uh, have You guys been loving this series on Job? No, you haven't. Come on. You guys are like, no, not really. Seriously, come on. It's Job. I told Rod, uh, it was several months ago. I said, hey, if you need help this summer, I'd love to fill in. Just let me know. No big deal if not. But he said, hey, we're doing this, this series on Job. You want to step into that? I said, ah, oh, man, I think I'm busy that month. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what month it is, but I'm sure I've got something. <clears throat> If you said yes, you've been loving this series, you've either been lying or not listening. One of those two. This is a tough book, isn't it? It's a tough book. It's a, it's a sandwich. You know, this is like a double meat, like triple meat, double cheese, mushroom on top sandwich that is difficult to chew on and digest and uh, it takes some work and, some, and there's some difficult things to labor through in here. And this morning we're going to uh, continue on in our book, in the book of Job. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 32 through 37. No, we will not be reading the whole thing. We'll read a portion of it. If you need a Bible, go ahead and uh, raise your hands so we can see who didn't bring their Bible to church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Come on. Come on. Don't take yourself so seriously. Rod tells me that all the time. Ryan, just don't take yourself so seriously. Seriously, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you didn't bring it, no big deal. If you're like me, you got two kids. I mean, it takes everything you have just to get out of the door in the morning. I can't be bothered, or if I have my Bible with me or not. So uh, we've got people that will hand out Bibles if you need them. We're going to be looking this morning at Job 32 through 37 by way of review well, let me just say this one thing that you're you're probably finding in this book of job if you have studied it if you've been listening in this series is again it's a there's a lot it's a theologically dense book there's a lot of weight uh, to this book that we need to chew on and wrestle with, and not only is it theologically dense, it deals with an issue that none of us like to talk about, and it deals with the issue of human suffering, and more specifically, the this idea of why does God allow good people to suffer, and where is God in the midst of the suffering? And especially in this American culture that is set up, uh, everything in our culture is set up to avoid suffering, to avoid pain. The very essence of the American dream is set up to avoid pain and suffering. And unfortunately, the church in America largely has bought in hook, line, and sinker to this. That following Jesus is going to make your life easy and comfortable. And friends, I want to say it's an absolute lie. It's an absolute lie. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into any message that will tell you that Jesus is going to make your life easy. Because it's an absolute lie and it's an absolute deception. You heard Rod talk about this a bit last week, this, the deception of the prosperity gospel, that Jesus' greatest desire for you is that you would be safe and comfortable. And Jesus has a much greater plan in your life than your comfort and safety. But we don't like to talk about this. and then So, so we're wrestling with this idea of human suffering and where's God in the midst of this, and then you add to this... Our theology of a good God, that God is a good God, and so where where is he in the midst of this pain? And so how does a good God allow this? And then add to that Psalms and other passages that that clearly state Psalm five, verse twelve. God will bless the righteous. The Lord will cover him with favor with a shield. The Psalms start out, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of living water whose leaf does not wither. and all that he does, he pro- In all that he does, he prospers. So how do we we reconcile that when indeed we do suffer? When indeed there is much pain and suffering in this world. And apparently needlessly. And some of you guys have been through that and maybe are in that right now. Of apparent needless suffering. And what do we do in the midst of those times? This is not a book that will allow us... Uh, trite theological propositions. It is not a book that will offer immediate relief in the midst of pain and suffering. It is not a book that will even afford you much much comfort in the midst of your pain and suffering. But I think that if we would allow ourselves to wrestle with the text, and even more so, if we would allow the text to wrestle with us, what I think we can find in the midst of it is hope. Hope that transcends your circumstance. Hope that might not bring relief to your immediate pain, but hope that transcends your circumstance, that there's something greater that we are living for. By way of review, let's cover a little bit where we have come from on this journey. And we see in the beginning of of our journey through Job is that this book starts out with some big theological questions. If you've been following this journey and if you've been reading Job, you find at the beginning there's this man Job who is righteous. He's the greatest man of the East. And then God himself says that he is blameless and without fault. He's a righteous man. you are here two weeks ago, Brandon even highlighted that he's an intercessor. He's He's actually a foreshadowing of Christ, interceding for his children. But then the scene changes to this celestial scene with God and Satan, and here's where things become a little bit difficult, because it seems to me that when I read chapter one, that this whole thing that happens to Job actually starts out with God picking a fight with Satan. I don't, I don't know. I, that's, when I'm reading this thing, I'm like, I see God actually antagonizing Satan. As if, if God had not opened his mouth, none of this would have happened. And he actually kind of antagonizes Satan and says, well, what about Job? There's a blame. Let's see what you can do to Job. And then, and then Satan's like, well, let me have a chance. And God says, well, okay, have a chance. And he goes and he beats Job up and he comes back. And God says, well, look, he's still blameless. Well, Job's, and then Satan says, well, let me have another chance. And, and God says, okay. And so Satan goes, beats him up some more. And, and it's like you're, you're, you're reading this and you've got to be thinking, where is God in this? Does that bother anybody? Does that wrestle with anybody when you think, God, what are you doing here? God's antagonizing Satan and then giving him permission to beat up Job. And then nowhere in the scene do you see God stepping in to defend Job. Does this mess with anybody? It messes with me. It really messes with me. It really forces me to think, what do I believe about God? And that's what we should be doing in Job, is what do we believe about God? If you go on through Job, you see that uh, at the end of chapter 1, Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. And then it says, in all of this, Job did not sin in what he was saying. And then we go into chapter 2 through 31, and here comes Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Less than helpful friends. Less than helpful friends. And Rod talked a bit about this last week. These friends come and they mourn with Job for a week, but then, which is great, but then they open their mouth. And, and as soon as they open their mouth, you think, oh, I wish you would not have opened your mouth. And they start to accuse Job. And they say, Job, here's the problem. God does not judge the righteous. It's the wicked that suffer. Therefore, you must be, you're suffering because you must have sinned. There must be something wrong. Therefore, repent of this sin in your life. And then God will restore you. And then Job defends himself. And he says, no, I haven't. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm righteous. I don't deserve this. And then the next friend steps up to bat and get and takes a couple cracks at Job. And he says, no, Job, you've sinned. There has, there has to be a sin in your life because God is judging your sin. And Job says, no, I'm righteous. I haven't done anything wrong. And this goes on for 30 chapters, 30 painful chapters. It's like It's like running through a pool of pudding. And it's like... You read, it's like you read these 30 chapters and you think, well, that was a waste of time. You ever had conversations like that? That was a waste of time. You should not have opened your mouth. Maybe people say that about me. I don't know. Maybe people are like, Ryan, you should not have opened your mouth. So we get to the end of this interchange between Job and his friends and it's like Job runs out of words, and his friends throw up their hands, and there's a, it's like a complete stalemate. It's like a complete stalemate. And then we come to chapter 32, and we find that this whole time, there's been a fourth friend that has been listening. A friend that goes by the name of Elihu, or Elihu, depending on how you pronounce it. Let's read from Job chapter 32. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from Job 32. I'll read the beginning of this and then I'm going to jump to chapter 33. It says, so these three men, Job's three friends, stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite, that's a cool name. That's a cool, if that was my name, I would ask you all to call me by that. Hey, Elihu. Oh, no, just call me Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite. That's cool. Of the family of Ram. Became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned, had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when they saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, son of Barakal, the Buzite, said, I am younger in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a man, the breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. If it's not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. Jump to me with chapter 33. who continues, but now Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart my lips sincerely speak what i know the spirit of god has made me the breath of the almighty gives me life answer me if you can prepare yourself and confront me i am just like you before god i too have been taken from clay no fear of you should alarm no sh- fear of me should alarm you nor should my hand be heavy upon you but you have said in my hearing, I have heard the very words. Elihu says, this is what what he hears Job has said. Job, you have said, I am pure and without sin. I am clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. Back to Elihu. Elihu says, But Job, I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of your words? For God does speak now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on man, As they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress so that his very... Being finds food repulsive, and his soul ch- loathes the choices of, of, of meals. His flesh wastes away to nothing. His bones, once hidden, now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to the messengers of death. Verse 23. Yet, if there is an angel on his side, as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell A man, what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, Spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for him. That's gospel. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. He is restored in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. Then that man comes to man and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, but I did not get what I deserved. He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit, and I will live to enjoy the light. Amen. Have a seat. It was about 10 years ago that I came to one of the lowest points in my life. And uh, I share this with a little bit of uh, hesitation because I know of some of the suffering that people in this very church have endured. And the suffering that I have endured in my life, it pales in comparison. But here's the deal with suffering, right? Is that it's not worth comparing. In the moment of suffering, comparison offers no compassion. How many of you have heard somebody in the time of your difficulty in trial say, man, I know what you're going through? How many of you have wanted to punch that person in the face? Because that's never helpful, right? Because it's not an issue of comparison. Because when you're in your lowest point, that's your lowest point. And my lowest point came probably, about, well, one of my lowest points about 10 years ago. And it centered around a broken engagement in my life. Uh, one of two failed engagements in my life, and it was soon after I'd gotten back from YWAM, met a girl in YWAM, and everything had gone great, and after Y, as as they do in YWAM, and then I got, we got out of YWAM, and started dating, and got engaged, and everything was going great, and it was going beautiful, and man, I just, I knew the hand of God was in this, I just knew the hand of God was in this. Everything had been working out. Everything had been going great. And I just knew that God was in this. That this was God's plan. And then it all came shattering down one afternoon with a phone call. When my girlfriend, my fiance at the time, had, had called me up out of the blue and, and said, It's over. It's over. I can't do it anymore. And man, at that point, my life, at that everything I knew at that point in my life came crumbling down and I just man I, I, I broke I just absolutely broke I started weeping and crying and and crying out to the Lord and, and and for hours just weeping and crying and 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 asking God what are you doing in this where are you in this And I just remember that day crying and crying for hours and hours and and really and and wrestling with God and saying, God, where are you? And and the whole time I don't I I found no comfort in God's word. I it felt like I was praying and my, my prayers were hitting the ceiling and nobody was listening and there was no cup of cold water in that desert for me. And I got to the end of that day and I was so confused. And I was, I was so offended at God. And I wonder, have you been in that place? Maybe your circumstance is different. Maybe it's a, a lot worse than that. But I wonder, have you been in that place where when you think God is in it and it all comes crumbling down. And you're saying, God, where are you in this? And I remember uh, at that time I was surrounded by just an incredible community. Incredible community of people. Uh, people that loved the Lord and loved me, and they never offered any, any, any trite words of comfort that are all too common and yet offer very little help. They they would come and just sit with me and and, and cry with me, and and I had a, a friend that would call me up every day, and he would ask me, "Ryan, how you doing today?" And I can remember saying, "You know what? I don't know." I don't, Andy, I said, don't, Andy, I don't know if God is good right now. I don't know if God is good. This doesn't make sense. I don't understand how God, the goodness of God, fits into this. And again, I wonder, have you been in that place where you have come to the point of actually questioning the very goodness of God? God, are you really good? Are you really good? And if so, why, why would you allow this to happen? And this went on for a couple of weeks. And I kind of got to the point where I could say, you know what? Yeah, God is good. I don't know why. I don't understand it. But I just, I know that God is good. But man, I, and I look back at that time. And in hindsight, I can see what God was doing in my life. Because in that time, so God did something in me. In that time, something happened what happened in that time is there was a dark area of my heart that was brought to the surface. There was a darkness in my heart that I did not know existed before that time. If you would have asked me before that, I would have said, of course God is good, look at my life. But then when things got difficult, I actually called into question the very goodness of God. And friends, I think this is one of the powers of Christian suffering. Is that when we go through times of difficulty and suffering. Is it brings to surface dark areas of our heart that we did not know existed. I think that's what we see happening here in Job's life. It says in the beginning God himself says that he is blameless and pure. There's no fault found in him. And even after he loses everything it says that. That he does not sin in what he says. But then when he starts getting pushed and shoved. And when he starts getting pressed. He starts defending himself. And almost shaking his fist at God. Saying God how dare you. How dare you. I don't deserve this. I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve what I'm, what's happening to me right now. And you see. Man when I look back at that time in my life. Ten years ago. The words of Job echo in my ears. Job 33 verse 12. But I tell you, in this, you are not right. In this, you are not right. Job, the way you are responding to God right now is not right. For God is greater than than man. Job, you're trying to justify yourself before God right now rather than justifying God before man. Job, in this, you are not right. Rod last week talked a lot about wrestling with God and is it okay to wrestle with God? I'm going to get that get to that in a moment. But I think some of us here maybe need to hear the words of Elihu this morning, that maybe you're in a point, and things don't make sense, and you're shaking your fist at God, saying, God, I don't deserve this. I've done nothing wrong. In this, you are not right. In this, you are not right. Because if we follow the words of Elihu this morning, we see that he preaches gospel to Job. And I think we get to, we start, just begin to uncover a little bit of God's purposes in allowing human suffering. In verse 30, uh, in chapter 33, verse 17, it says, To turn man from wrongdoing, to keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. And then, Jump down to 23, and if there is a mediator on his side that can stand before God and say, I have found a ransom. Job, your righteousness outside of Christ is nothing. And even now, Job, there's a darkness in your heart that needs to be dealt with. And I think this is the power of Christian suffering is that if we allow it, if we allow God in the process, is that it will uncover dark areas of our heart that we did not know existed before we went through that trial. And if we allow it, if we will allow God, we can bring that to God and let him deal with that. God is not trying to expose the darkness of Job's heart to beat him up and say, you're a bad person, But rather to say, Job, even you need a savior. And friends, isn't that the very heart of the gospel? Isn't that the very heart of the gospel? That my righteousness is nothing of my own. That I have got nothing good in my own flesh to offer to God. That even in my purest, I need a savior. That I need a mediator. That even in my best moments, I need a ransom. I think about a a very simple example. My wife and I have two little girls. Beautiful, fun little girls. Love being a dad. Uh, You'll see them running around after this service. Love being a dad. And uh, my wife and I, we try really hard to be good parents. We actually do. We, tr- we try to be really intentional. We try to raise our girls in the fear of the Lord, uh, try to teach them about Jesus, and, and we, try to, we try really hard to parent well. And I think we do an okay job of it. And there may even be times that you could come into my home and watch how we parent and say, wow, you guys are, you, you might even have, there may be glimpses, glimpses, where you might come into my home and say, wow, you guys are blameless. Glimpses, brief brief moments. But then there's the other days. Any young fathers? Young fathers, you know about the other days? The days when you come home at the end of the day, long week, the house is a wreck, the girls are both in timeout. Well, they're supposed to be in timeout, but they're running around naked. You know, your (laughs) wife's at the end of her wits, just, and, and, uh, You guys know about the other days, right? I can surprise myself at how quickly I can get frustrated. Anybody with me there? Any young fathers with me there? Can you I I can actually surprise myself at the amount of frustration that can so quickly rise up in my heart. Like, I can actually stand back and and be surprised, say, the amount of frustration is not warranted in this situation. Is anybody with me? Please. Maybe I'm just a horrible father, but this is my reality. But here's the deal, friends, is in those moments, I don't need better parenting techniques. I know good parenting techniques. I don't need to read another book. Because what those times do, honestly, what those times do is it reveals the brokenness of my own heart. It reveals the sinfulness and the wickedness of my own heart. In that time, what it does is it forces me to recognize that even now, I need a Savior. I need a Messiah. I need a ransom. I need God to come and change this heart of mine. And friends, that is most effectively done in times of suffering. When your own responses expose the condition of your heart. Now understand me here, I am not talking about works righteousness. And I am not talking about wavering in and out of salvation. I'm talking about becoming pure and righteous before God. That if we will allow it in times of suffering... And allow God to expose those areas of our hearts. And then bring those before God and allow, them, allow God to deal with those areas of our hearts. It's in those times that we are made righteous and pure before God. Now I, I want to take another step beyond where we are right now. Because there's some of you that maybe you're in this point. You're in a point of difficulty and trial that you're in a point of suffering right now. And you can survey your life. And you can look at your life. And you can honestly you say, I, I'm not shaking my fist at God. I, I know that God is good. I know that he's good. But man, I just don't know how to respond in this situation right now. I know that because I've heard some of the stories in this. I've heard some of the stories that are happening right now. Some of the difficulties that are happening right now in this church. That there's people in this church that are going through difficult times. And you're not shaking your fist at God, but you're just, man, you're wrestling. And you're saying, God, I don't know how to respond to this. I know that you're good, and I don't want to be offended at you. Let me say this. Just put it very clearly. There's a massive difference between wrestling with God and being offended at God. There's a massive difference Between wrestling with God and being offended at God. Like Rod said last week, uh, God loves a wrestling match. Jacob wrestled with God. David wrestled with God. But when you get into the area of offense, that's when we need to hear the words of Elihu. In this, you are not right. But some of you, again, are not in that place. You're in a place where your heart is right before God and you're wondering, how do I respond in this situation, God? What do you want from me right now? It was about eight years ago or so, my brother and his wife, they're missionaries out in Central Asia, and their firstborn uh, little girl had come down with uh, an illness, a sickness, and they didn't know exactly what was going on. And they're in an area of the world where there's not good medical attention, and so they're monitoring what's going on with her and she just gets worse and worse and worse and gets to the point where her her breathing starts becoming staggered and her heart rate drops and so they call some some local doctors and they say we don't really know what this is and and then they call some doctors some friends of theirs in the states and and they called several of them and each of them said "Uh, Jeff we don't know what this is there's several options and none of them are good you need to call you need to charter a medical flight right now and get her to london and so they 're watching and her and her, and her uh, condition is deteriorating quickly, nobody can tell them what 's going on i mean quickly deteriorating all that, for, for all that they knew, they were watching their daughter die before their eyes, and there 's nothing they could do before, do about it literally. Daughter in their arms watching her die. Wrestling with God. Angry, frustrated. God, I don't understand this. And then they felt like God asked them this question. Will you worship me right now? Will you worship me right now? And they wrestled through that. And they said, yes, we will. Yes, we will. We don't understand you right now. This is difficult and painful right now, but we will worship right now. And he said, they, uh, so they got together with some friends, and they, they sang, and they prayed, and they worshipped. He said it was the most difficult time of worship in their lives. As they were wrestling with God, questioning, God, I don't know what you're doing here. Feeling the weight of that pain. Uh, some of you guys need to hear that this morning. It's okay to feel the weight of that pain. But that's a good thing to allow yourself to feel the weight of that pain. Long story short, they get to London, she recovers, and today they have a, a nine year old beautiful little girl. But in the midst of the, the difficulty, their challenge will you worship right now? think about my, uh, my friend Dan Bauman. Some of you that have been, through, been to YWAM may have read his book or heard him speak. He was imprisoned in Iran for nine weeks, many years ago. Two death sentences on his head. I wrote a book about it called Imprisoned in Iran. He gets out. I don't like to be a spoiler, but he gets out. And when word had gotten out on the state side that Dan was imprisoned, if you hear about political prisoners in Iran, you'll hear about this infamous, infamous prison in Iran. This is the prison he was in. Uh, beat every single day. When word got out on the st- state side that, that Dan was in prison with two death sentences on, on his head, uh, they got together all, all over the states and at the base that he was stationed at in Colorado, they got together and they'd pray every night and they'd cry out to God and they'd wrestle with God. Say, God, release Dan from prison. God, would you release Dan from prison? And then one night, in the midst of all this, as people are crying out to God, wrestling with God, Dan's mom, 6 year old woman at that time, prays. She speaks up, and she prays. And this is her prayer. God, I pray that you would not release my son from prison until all of your purposes are accomplished in his life. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Dan always says, I'm glad other people were praying. <laughs> <laughs> And those are stories where it ends well, right? But what about when it doesn't end so well? What about when it doesn't end so well? It's, uh, it's hard to preach Job in this church without thinking about the Tages family. Many of you guys know the Tages family, know that story. Uh, Derek was a youth pastor at this church, passed away several years ago, tragically, in a house fire with his son. And if you were at the funeral you witnessed and experienced great grieving and sorrow and pain, intense grieving and sorrow and pain, and wrestling. But here's one of the things I remember about that service: is at that very end of the service, when the service was over, Charity and her girls up on stage dancing, dancing, in worship of God. Thank God, you are greater than this. You are greater than this circumstance right now. You are greater than this difficulty. I don't understand it, but God, you are greater. Think about John the Baptist, Matthew 11. You guys know this story. It's at the end of John the Baptist's life. And he sent, John's in prison with a death sentence on his head, nearing to the end of his life, and... He sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the one to come? Or should we wait for another? And I don't have time to unpack that all right now. But what John is asking him, he's not questioning if Jesus is the Messiah. John knows he's the Messiah. He absolutely knows he's the Messiah. John, uh, John is doing a very Jewish thing. And Jesus at- answers in a very Jewish response. He says to his disciples, he says, go tell John that the sick are healed. The lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the lame walk, and the gospel is preached to the poor. John, do not be offended at me. And what Jesus is saying in that moment, he's referring to Isaiah, where Isaiah says, The Messiah will come and set the captives free. John is saying, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, am I going to get out of prison? Are you going to set me free? Am I going to get out? I've been faithful to the end. Are you going to set me free? And Jesus responds, but he leaves out. The prisoners have been set free. As if to say, John, you're going to die in that prison cell. John, you're going to die in that prison cell. John, don't be offended at me. John, in this last trial, one more. You've been faithful to this point. John, don't give up now one more trial. Be faithful to the end because I've got something greater for you. And I think about these stories and these people that have suffered well and I think what is the thing that allows them to suffer so well? What is, the, what is it that would allow somebody to dance and worship at their husband's funeral? I think Paul gives us an insight in 2 Corinthians 4. He says these temporary afflictions, they're preparing for us the weight of eternal glory. Set your eyes not on the things that are seen, but on the unseen Paul's saying all of the difficulties and the trials of this world, they're actually doing something in you. They're preparing for you something so much greater than you could ever imagine. And I wonder, do you guys have that hope this morning? That is true hope. That there's something so much greater that I'm living for. That there is a day coming like burning fire. When Jesus will split the sky. That he will come commanding the very armies of heaven. There's a coming a day when the kingdom of heaven will come down like a bride prepared for her bridegroom. When all pain and suffering and sorrow will cease. And I'm living for that day. Are you guys living for that day? And I think in the church we've made the kingdom of heaven so much about the right now. Which I agree with. But I think that sometimes we make it so much about the right now that we forget about the not yet. That we forget that there's a day coming. Friends, there's a wedding coming. There's a wedding coming. If you've been married, you know that there's a lot of work and maybe even some suffering that you go through for a wedding, right? Okay, guys, you don't suffer a lot. But, but brides, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right? We're just like, I don't know, what color? I don't know, are jeans okay? I don't know. But man, there's some work to do preparing for a wedding, right? There's some labor, there's some difficulty that you've got. There's a cost that goes in to preparing that day. But if you talk to a bride preparing for her wedding day, she she doesn't even count the cost. It's like it doesn't even matter because there's a wedding day coming. And friends, there's a wedding day coming. There's a wedding day coming, and your current circumstances, they're just temporary. They're just temporary afflictions, and when you have your eyes set on the unseen things of God, then you can endure these difficulties well. Ten years ago, when I was in a low point in my life, I had a friend that gave me the the best piece of wisdom anybody ever gave me. She said this. She said, Ryan, suffer well. Ryan, endure this time well. And then she said this. She said, Ryan, mourn well. Because if you do, there's glory at the other end of it. There's glory at the other end of it. And friends, I believe that is true hope. That if you suffer these times well, you fix your eyes on Jesus, that there is hope and glory on the other end of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for hope that you do not leave us abandoned, that you do not leave us to suffer needlessly alone, but that even in times of difficulty, especially in times of difficulty, you are preparing for us the weight of eternal glory. I pray, God, that you would give us the grace this morning to set our eyes on the unseen things of God, to the future glory that is to come, that we might be those that endure this time well, that can stand before you spotless and pure, awaiting the coming wedding. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.